This programming is sponsored by the UH Health Family Care Center, offering primary care and behavioral health services on the University of Houston campus. Health insurance plans including Medicare and Medicaid accepted. New patient appointments and more at 832-UH-CARES. This programming is sponsored by Central Market, offering chef-prepared appetizers, mains, and sides for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, like quiche, grilled chicken, dips, and salads prepared daily. More at centralmarket.com. I see you. She's a professor at Rice University, and this fall she'll be teaching a brand new course on science and technology. The anthropologist will introduce students to new concepts and theories centered around black women's studies and its impact on race and gender. But a very interesting fact about her is that her grandfather was Dr. Samuel Massey, a renowned chemist who developed atomic bombs in World War II. It weighs on me that a lot of the ways I'm able to do what I do is rooted in, again, like a very vicious production of Empire, through the atom bomb. I'm Eddie Robinson, and stay tuned for an unguarded chat with Rice University professor Dr. Victoria Massey. We learn more about her new course and why she's still struggling with the legacy of her grandfather. Oh, yeah, I feel you. We hear you. I see you. You're listening to I See You. I'm Eddie Robinson. Here to discuss her new coursework that she's going to be starting over at Rice University, it's Dr. Victoria Massey. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at Rice University, and she's developed a new course, which is called Black Feminist Science Studies. It's going to be available in the fall of this year. And I'm actually a bit upset that there's no black masculinity science studies. And maybe that needs to be constructed, but that's a totally different can of worms, which we may or may not get into if time is allotted. But that's why we have to have you on ICU. This is something that's brand new. And we would love to find out some more details about it. But Dr. Massey's new course is being offered up at Rice and will explore concepts and theories that focus on black women's lived experiences and the impacts of how race and gender help shape our world scientifically and even through technology. What does all of that mean? Well, let's find out. Dr. Victoria Massey, thanks enormously for being a guest right here on ICU. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk about this. I'm surprised, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah I'm excited. No, 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 no. This, this is great. We love newness. And first things first, in layman's terms, what do you mean by Black feminist theory? Yeah. <laughs> What's up with that? Yeah. yeah. You know, so what I take from, so the Black feminist science of course, insofar as drawing from Black feminist theory One of the things that we're trying to contend with, at least through the lens of science, is differential power dynamics. So like with your inference, we can can go ahead and tackle the the why not black masculinities, for instance, as a focus. We can start, I think, one one reason is, for instance, you know, drawing on Kimberly Crenshaw's uh, concept of intersectionality. Intersectionality is just a metaphor for understanding the ways that multiple forms of inequality or disadvantage sometimes compound themselves and they create obstacles that often are not understood within conventional ways of thinking about anti-racism or feminism or whatever social justice advocacy structures we have. I have, a lot of times people use this term as a kind of cumulative thing. So I have all of these different identities for me, like... I'm black, I'm a woman, I'm queer, I'm an American, all of these things. And yet that's not the point. <laughs> that's not the point, which what Kimberly Crenshaw is actually trying, it's almost like thinking about, it's about positioning. So if we talk about, think about an intersection, like if you are, it's like, if you are at, unfortunately I'm still new to Houston, and so I'm trying to figure out even how to like do this <laughs> with like shapes. Interesting. And you, where did you move here from? 
from Cambridge left Boston area when nice. I did a brief like fellowship, but I spent basically most of the past decade in the Bay Area Got for it. grad school. But like with like intersections, so I'm like thinking about maybe like my Bay Area <laughs> geography is like very, okay. very like prominent for me. So I'm like when I think about downtown Berkeley because I went to the school at Berkeley nice. for a PhD, awesome. and I just okay. was always there was like for instance San Pablo and University, and you could like go up University and it'd be like Solano and University. There Although these two, like they are, these are intersections. There are two intersections we're talking about in this. Both of them are connected by university, but they're not the same place. Got it. You would not say that university in San Pablo is the same exact place and gives you the exact same perspective as Solano and University Avenue. You wouldn't. You wouldn't say there's any kind of intersections. They're connected, but they're not the same. And a part of oftentimes what people miss is like, that's actually what Kimberly Crenshaw is trying to talk about with intersectionality. Like people are situated in different spaces via different kinds of power dynamics. So it's like if university were race, like Solano would be men, black men, and then San Pablo would be black women. We're connected, but it's not the same. And a part of what intersectionality is trying to get at with this kind of what I call dead angle, where oftentimes elite in law, there's a problem of that when dealing with racism, black women's experiences would not be adequately addressed because when dealing with them as black people, it was often understood their experience was always kind of being determined by the experience of black men. And then if they're dealing with gender discrimination, they're dealing with the fact that oftentimes the notion of gender discrimination is rooted in experiences rooted in white womanhood. So intersectionality is trying to give us a frame of reference from that position that's oftentimes not being dealt with. And so it's a different kind of engagement with marginalization, but also I think a kind of attention to liberation, which is to say a lot of what Black Feminist Theory tries to do is not just call attention to like we are being oppressed, but also this kind of force of transformation, responsibility, collectivizing, it's always the both. It's I, it's both. I I am because we are. It is. I am not. I cannot be without another person. And so even when I say black feminist kind of science studies, that's that's a part of what I'm trying to kind of. It, there's kind of a critique of black of masculinities, or oftentimes how the masculine is at the forefront when sure. we're thinking about the black experience. It's often even, you know, why we have say our name the campaign. Having a mental disability while black, having a domestic disturbance while black, they've even been killed being homeless while black. Why don't we know these stories? Because oftentimes we black women and we think of womanhood in an expansive sense, um, not just cisgendered women. You know, women with an extra just kind of who are the black people whom we're paying attention to. And so when I think about black feminist theory, I'm trying to utilize these frameworks, these theories, these concepts. And what does that mean for how we think about science and technology today? Like, what is that experience of the world from that the, the kind of perspective that's oftentimes kind of over-policed and yet somehow not being seen what what is that kind of paradoxical positioning that's right provide for us and when i'm thinking about black feminism it's thinking about it death with women's studies but also kind of black queer studies and also thinking about kind of empire in a bigger sense that's also part of like when we're thinking about blackness black feminism black feminist theory it's not just solely rooted in the diaspora and or america like, what does it mean to also think about Blackness from the continent of Africa itself, which unfortunately, sometimes with Black studies can get lost. Got it. Interesting. And that's fascinating to me. And for those who are listening, it's ICU. I'm Eddie Robinson, and we're speaking with Dr. Victoria Massey. She's a professor over at Rice University with a brand new course being offered up for students who have interests in science and technology studies, medical humanities, and or black studies. The course is called Black Feminist Science Studies, and the course will mention terms like 
black feminist theory or Afrofuturism or intersectionality, which we've just described. And she mentions the name Kimberly Crenshaw, who was this amazing scholar, uh, writer on civil rights and critical race theory as well. And intersectionality was such a very interesting word. And I like to look at it as how certain aspects of who you are will increase your access to the good things or your exposure to the bad Mm -hmm. things in life. And that sort of like, I don't know if you want to call it dichotomy, but, you know, it's a very interesting, fast sort of theory behind the word intersectionality. Mm -hmm. And I've also been curious about what led you to this in the first place? You know, who or what really inspired you to develop and create this kind of a course? You know, how did this material spark your interest in the first place? Yeah, I think it was actually pretty organic. So I can like start with kind of scholarly work. You know, I'm really fortunate in terms of my own training, the people I get to be in conversation with as colleagues who are people who are basically doing this work. So even though (laughs) I'm, I just developed this course at Rice, you know, these are ongoing conversations. Another part of this is my work in science, technology studies, and African studies as well. There's some really phenomenal kind of conversations, long going, but I think I've been picking up in the past couple of years of really trying to think about why there's a tension sometimes between science studies and African studies, especially when there are a pretty substantial number of us who work at that intersection. Again, it's like push and pull. <laughs> Why is it that you, we both like here, but somehow we're not actually getting the same kind of recognition or there are only certain kinds of conversations people want to have about science, technology on the continent. Putting the continent as always already in the past, not necessarily present, least of all thinking about the future, which so much of this is integral to when we think about science. Science is about innovation and progress. And yet all of these understandings about Africa is being lost or failed or... And that's like both in theory, but also in just the everyday ways we often talk about Africa. That's not actually true. And so how do we kind of figure that out? And so for me, it's oftentimes being kind of black feminist concepts, theories, poetics that have enabled me to think about how to recreate a kind of grammar. Like there's a kind of conversation I'm trying to write and they give me the tools to create that conversation. So I'm not reacting. I'm not interested in reacting to folks. I'm very clear on what kind of conversation I will and will not have. And it comes from Black feminist kind of works that I get to draw from to make that point much more clear. That's the scholarly stuff. And I think the other side of it, just personally, so much of my scholarly work just comes from the fact that I come from a family who have always seen this kind of like breadth of what science can be in the world. And both like, so one coming from educators on both sides of my family, so the Andersons from North Carolina, and then also the Massey, one of whom my grandfather, I often take as like a particular kind of like foil, or just like a, maybe not foil, <laughs> an example of like what is possible. Yeah, he was, what was it? A chemi- organic chemist but initially wanted to be a sociologist. I was initially wanted to be a geneticist and became an anthropologist. So, but just someone who I think I've found that people are, might see, seem as blasphemous today, but he always saw science and chemistry in particular as kind of a kind of magic, which I don't think people would. <laughs> so like I, I'm like trying to imagine engaging with students who I often teach are coming from the natural sciences. And I was like, objectivity and this and that. And it's like, no, like I come from a family that is like, Science studies is just what we do. And how do we put this to work in the world to be good people, whatever that means, or just be accountable to folks. And it's not to say be perfect, but science does not make you inherently a good person. It's what you do with it. Yeah, and so that's, I think, also a part of like the two things that I'm often working with and why I would be interested in this. Coming up, more Rice professor, Dr. Victoria Massey, and we learn more about the influence of her grandfather and his groundbreaking work as a chemist on the Manhattan Project, which took place during World War II. It was the code name for the American-led effort to research, build, and develop a functional atomic weapon. How did his work inspire her passion to conduct research and study science and technology? And is she still trying to make sense 
of her grandfather's legacy. I'm Eddie Robinson. I see you. We'll be right back in just a moment. If you're enjoying this program, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast, I See You with Eddie Robinson. You can hear all the past episodes and be notified when new episodes are released. Also, please take a minute to give us a review or comment. We love getting feedback from our listeners. listening to I See You. I'm Eddie Robinson, and we're speaking with Dr. Victoria Massey. She's a professor here in Houston at Rice University, and will introduce her students this fall to a new course entitled Black Feminists Social Studies. This course will explore concepts and theories on Black women's lived experiences and the impacts of how race and gender have helped shape our world, both scientifically as well as through technology. Now, before we left for break, she mentioned her grandfather, a renowned chemist who worked on the Manhattan Project and was the first African-American professor at the United States Naval Academy in 1966. We continue our conversation. Your grandfather, Dr. Samuel Massey, he was an extremely influential chemist from back in the day who attended, from what I read, Iowa State at the height of World War II and was assigned to the Manhattan Project, the first program that created the first atomic bomb. He even had to go to a basement and had to use a separate lab from white students. And I'm curious, Dr. Massey, you know, what were some of your memories that you could share with us about you and your grandfather? Uh, do you envision... Uh, any connections even to what his interests were and your own now as it relates to your profession and or the content or the material that you've wanted to explore as an anthropologist? Yeah, you know, I think the, the interesting thing about my grandfather is that the kind of there's there's like the figure of him, him as like the chemist, and he did all these things. And then there, and then there's Pop Pop, and I, for the most part, growing up, only knew Pop Pop. <laughs> you know, awesome. so, and I say that because even, you know, he he passed away back in 2005, and so I was like, you know, still a teenager, and even for a significant amount of time, probably like for most of that time, half my half of that time, I really only knew him with dementia. So like my dad is the youngest of three and there's like a whole decade between <laughs> him and my uncles, okay. like, you know, questions of whether it was like <laughs> a mistake or not. <laughs> but but like that means that when I think about like my older cousins who have these like really vivid experiences with my grandparents as like people, a lot of what I was experiencing growing up of him was a kind of like almost having to like him as a human at the end of his life and having to just kind of hold that alongside this other figure that I just didn't get to experience. So a lot of this is like almost a kind of, this is a lot of mythologization of him. Jeez. Like I, I didn't experience like pop up this like phenomenal speaker and all of this, but I did get to see pop up being this really kind human being after church on Sundays, like when we have tea or something afterward. They're not, it's not either or. But that means that when I think about what it's all, it's a lot of speculation. And even some of the things that I know about him, it's almost me having to do work about it or like thinking about like stories my father would tell me or things I would hear. Sure. Yeah, it's like he is a myth to me too, in a, in a way. And so I think that gives me a lot of freedom though. But it also, that freedom comes with a price in many respects of dealing with some of the not so pleasant aspects of his legacy. So like when we mentioned the Manhattan Project. At 5.30 a.m., July 16, 1945, the world entered the atomic age with an intense flash, a sudden wave of heat, followed by a tremendous shockwave. Like it's seen as like, at least in the U.S., it's like big deal, but like for others, it's a remnant of like war. Like 
friends who I think of, especially in grad school, came from like Vietnam and all this, who like really been, whose families have been so grossly affected by like nuclear warfare. And like that started out with Hiroshima and Nagasaki with the development of the, of the atom bomb through the Manhattan Project. You know, I've seen people like cringe, like immediately. And that's not about my grandfather, whether or not he was a good or bad person, especially when part of the backstory with him getting involved with that was because he had gone to Little Rock um, to renew his deferment papers and a military officer refused simply because he was a black person with with too much education, quote unquote. Um, So it's either work on kind of U.S. empire (laughs) via the atom bomb or sacrifice your life and kill some, like, either, yeah, go fight the war um, in Europe. But, like, death in so many respects was not an option. It was, like, almost like he didn't have an option of, like, to save himself having to sacrifice another person. It just happened to be through the atom bomb. And so, for me, a lot of this is his granddaughter. And this is one of the things, I don't know how this is going to happen. I look forward to it. But it's, like, one of these kind of goals for my life is having to figure out, like, how to pay that debt. I don't, again, I don't know what that looks like, but it weighs on me that a lot of the ways I'm able to do what I do is rooted in, again, like a very vicious production of empire through the atom bomb that doesn't go away just because my grandfather was a nice person and was recognized as being a really brilliant chemist. I He didn't deal with that, and I don't know, I mean, again... I only knew him so far, so I didn't never got to ask him how he felt or anything. Um, but regardless of what he felt, like I have to deal with that. Okay. When I'm in academia, it matters that I think it's it's phenomenal when you have folks who are first gen who are coming in academia, and I can only imagine how much pressure that is. Sure. But that's not a pressure I have because of him. And I think there's actually a way that because I didn't actually know him as this like formidable figure i mean i know he was so i'm not questioning that but i don't have to necessarily live up to a thing like it's just okay it just it's more so like it gives me permission to take risks and be fearless be dangerous because that's what yeah <laughs> and ask these like push to ask really important questions that will make people think twice that excites me and yeah it's just it's kind of almost yeah his myth gives me just something to kind of push through my sometimes fears more than anything. It's I See You. I'm Eddie Robinson, and we're speaking with Dr. Victoria Massey. She's a professor over at Rice University with a brand new course being offered up to students this fall called Black Feminist Science Studies. And I'm curious, you know, how popular has this course become? Are you receiving some great enrollment numbers? How are the students responding to the course merging of of science, technology, and black feminist theory? Are people responding? I think people are responding. (laughs) I mean, so it's like, some of this is just Rice's, like, culture itself. So it's a small university. When we think about, like, popularity, it's like, even if it were a bit, like, the, the course... The limit is 12 people. That's a part of like really taking seriously the intimacy of yeah, sure. classes at a place like Rice. It's also upper level. And so it's going to be more advanced students. And I think because it's more advanced, it's not going to be for everybody. <laughs> it's going to, you know, or not everybody's going to necessarily take that risk. But yeah, I think we've got seven seven out of 12 right now. And we just okay. we just started registration. So that feels good. I'm excited about it. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. So much of this for the classes, at least I've talked so far at Rice, has just been kind of, it's, it's really been about me seeing where students are at and kind of being surprised. So it's like, you know, at, at previous institutions, when I te- think about teaching an anthropology of science course, I would always just assume I'd have like natural science and humanities cl- uh, students in my class. And oftentimes that's not the case. It's hmm. oftentimes I'm teaching natural science students. That's just like a whole kind of menta- different mentality, different kind of pedagogy. It's almost like rather than doing sometimes not essentially focusing on high, like the hyper kind of theoretical conceptual work and making kind of students learn to think in practice. And that's one of the things that's been really exciting about like my medical anthropology seminar this semester. So many of it's like using anthropology's kind of practice or method, which is that we if there's anything, we have a really good way of kind of making something that's familiar seem a bit strange. 
So ideally, something that seems strange is a bit familiar. So it's a kind of lens of giving perspective, changing perspective. It's how to get them to do them practice. Mm-hmm. And should people on the outside be shocked or surprised of Rice University? I mean, so I'm, I'm wondering and curious if if there's been, you know, if you've experienced blowback, you know, has your passion for centering science within an African diaspora framework ever met adversity? You know, what challenges have you faced in terms of getting this kind of a coursework at Rice? And should people on the outside be surprised that Rice University is doing such a thing? <laughs> I mean, I'm still getting to know Rice, so I'm not sure what I can say go. about what you know. I mean, this is what I was hired to do. I think more than anything, and I think you know, black educators know this that oftentimes, if there's anything I maybe adversity can sometimes come down to. So oftentimes, when dealing with the natural sciences, what sometimes is counterintuitive of doing an anthropology of science is that we take concepts like objectivity. Like there is something clear and factual in the world. I observe it. I can test it to see if it's really, truly a fact. And then I report it. And like, that is what is. Like that is the truth. That is valuable. And anthropology (laughs) is going to force you to like, take a moment and pause and reflect. How is science actually being produced what are who is being considered in this entire process and it becomes really tedious (laughs) it can be really really tedious and it doesn't offer easy solutions and so you know i think on the one hand there's a kind of if there's blowback it's it's kind of reckoning with students who want a kind of assurance about kind of an absolute right yes or no that i can't give them from anthropology like i can't necessarily always give them and then just i think sometimes you know, it's, I recognize that I'm also oftentimes students, potentially students' first black professor. Yeah, at least it's all kind of black women professor. I had a student in my current course mention that to me. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm flattered, but also this is a thing of like legacy. I'm like, my grandfather, yeah. my grandfather was probably somebody's first black professor. And yet things yeah. have changed so little that I'm still having to be somebody's first. Like that's an indictment of higher education. There you go. And Dr. Massey, that's interesting. What's it like being a black woman in a scientific field? Go. (laughs) I mean, I think just more often than not, it's just it's contending with I don't necessarily often operate in a space that people see as expert. Like my and like I'm not just a black woman, like I'm a large black woman. And so there's all these ways that come with we think about projections and things. There's always this like specter of like mammy. <laughs> and there are a lot of ways that, particularly as someone who is fairly confident and self-assured, I'm in, especially when it comes to my expertise, not to say I know, I don't know everything, but what makes me particularly sharp is that I know exactly what I don't know. And I know what I know very well, <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> but that, I think that means people can sometimes be surprised by how direct I am that I ask very pointed questions, that I write, as a, as a friend put it, I'm a very pointed writer. Yeah, I write Scorched Earth. I ask questions like Scorched Earth because I want to get at the root. I tell like, I get the students to slow down because they want to do everything. It's like, no, we have to get at what exactly is going on here. And I think the biggest challenge, again, this is not unique to me. This is something that studies and studies have demonstrated in higher education. It's just people have a hard time with Black folks in authority including black women, black femme presenting folks. Yeah. It's I See You. I'm Eddie Robinson, and we're speaking with Dr. Victoria Massey. She's a professor over at Rice University with a brand new course being offered up for students called Black Feminist Science Studies. And she's here to shed more light on what the course is and why we need to study this to begin with and why this is important to us in our lives to understand. When we speak of black feminism... I know for me personally, being a man, you know, I think of the roles many black women have played in the struggle for freedom and the struggle for equality, especially when we speak of them being excluded from mainstream feminism because of their race, right? Mm-hmm. While also being excluded from participating in those black liberation movements because of their gender. What resonates with you the most, Dr. Massey, about black feminism and the future role it will play within our society? 
I think it's what resonates most with me is the responsibility of, of imagination. I think oftentimes when people think about the like notion of like building a better world or like making another world possible, it's oftentimes in the abstract. Like, oh, I can just imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I can just dream. Oh, I can just, I mean, you can, you can just do that. Or you can be thinking about how to materially invest in making that actual world possible. Not only think about and like do it, but see that as again your responsibility as a per- as a person, least of all a black person, for yourself. Again, I really want to like resist this notion that black folks, least of all black, yeah, black folks, black women, like black, yeah, just I want to central black folks should be here to like save everyone from themselves, especially when so oftentimes people will throw black folks <laughs> and like the further away you are from like a cisgender kind of like a certain kind of class kind of situation. Like those are the people who are going to be thrown under the bus for your own self-protection. Like, no, that, that can't be, no, you don't get to both like somehow lean on me and then throw me away when it's convenient for you. Like that's not it, but that means you have to take ownership of what it means to genuinely imagine things like imagine a genuinely different world and understand that that world is possible like that is that's not up for debate (laughs) another world is possible i want to say that i think part of recognizing how tangible that reality is is i think on the flip side when we see how much work it takes to reproduce or keep very and like outdated kind of ideas like it takes work people have to labor to ensure that change does not happen so if that's the case take that labor and think about like how we repurpose that labor toward actually making a different world more equitable world actually possible even if we don't see it like it shouldn't be that i have to see a world that's changed to be invested in making that world possible I think that's what I take away more than anything. It's the responsibility and the materiality of imagination. Coming up, we learn about a term that might be familiar to some, but very new to others. What is meant by Afrofuturism? And how will it impact our world, our imagination, for years to come? And how can this new course of study help us understand how race and gender directly impact health disparities as well as how resources and access to those health resources are being allocated? I'm Eddie Robinson. I see you. We continue our conversation with Rice University professor Dr. Victoria Massey right after this. If you're enjoying this program, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast, I See You with Eddie Robinson. You can hear all the past episodes and be notified when new episodes are released. Also, please take a minute to give us a review or comment. We love getting feedback from our listeners. I see you. I'm Eddie Robinson, and we're speaking with Dr. Victoria Massey. She's a professor of anthropology over at Rice University. Let's switch focus on Afrofuturism and that and what that future looks like, so to speak, that imagination. You know, what is it, Afrofuturism, and how can it serve to transform our world? Yeah. So, I mean, there are a couple of different ways to come at, like, the issue of Afrofuturism. So on the one hand... You're going to be thinking about what does it mean to think about the future when centered on the lives of people of African descent. <laughs> like taking the Afro like very, very seriously. Some of it can also be linked to there's some like really important emerging conversations that happened, for instance, in the 90s kind of move that was happening around a digital life. There's like a collective of thinkers, you know, one of whom is more well-known now, Alondra Nelson, working in the Biden administration. But like they basically create, like wrote this special issue 
I was thinking about Black Lives and futurity and, and technology in the 90s at that critical moment. But then there's also kind of been thinking about the speculative vein, Afrofuturism being tied to kind of science fiction. So we think about people like Octavia Butler. We turn now to one of the last television interviews given by the visionary black science fiction writer Octavia Butler. Butler was the first black woman to win the Hugo and Nebula Awards for science fiction writing. She was also the first science fiction writer to receive a MacArthur Genius Fellowship as one person and even when we're centering blackness in, in discussions of futurity how so much even time can be something that we can play around with i think about kindred in particular being on the one hand it's like really phenomenal science fiction piece but again it's rooted in playing in kind of i want to keep saying playing but really challenging assumption of the past is just the past and then her other works like Dawn, how that even, you know, again, written decades ago, how that can be speaking to this current moment of genetic engineering, just this kind of way, like what do black people offer about kind of anticipation, uh, kind of critique of what kind of future we're making possible in the current moment. But then also using this speculation, not just as always already an indictment, of the world like it's not just again we're just here to say this world is bad but even for ourselves what other possibilities can happen and so a part of one of the things i want to do with this class and think about afrofuturism also this tension not tension but just a difference between saying afrofuturism that's yes focused on black folks but it's often kind of afro diasporic which is different from say african futurism which is like something distinct like there's something about mytholo mythology technology from a kind of specifically african tradition from the continent that's very distinct from say kind of african-american kind of under, like yeah. notions of futurity and how do we hold all of those together i love the term and i didn't know anything about it up until recently and you know i'm a, I'm a lover of music and there are some incredible, you know, black artists, you know, people like Janelle Monet, yeah. and Sun Ra, and Earth, Wind, yep. and Fire, even Miles yep. Davis and Herbie yep. Hancock back in the day. Absolutely. How can you not think I, about it? Like bebop as like a kind of form yeah. of, like, yeah, uh-huh. And even like some electronic music and, and the electronic artists who are black and are making some incredible, incredible music. And we're seeing it being reflected in film, of course, and in television. Lovecraft Country, the series, of course. And there's Black Panther. And I, how can we forget, you know, movies like Blade, right? Mm -hmm. And being that, you know, we're now, you know, welcome to Houston, H-Town, hello, there's Solange and her mm -hmm. imaginary world and her music videos, and then Black is King with Beyonce, her sister, bringing in all these interesting yet fascinating visual pictures mm -hmm. of Afrofuturism, right? I mean, what is the importance of introducing audiences to Afrofuturism, and why do you think it's emerging so much right now? I mean, for, for my purposes, I think the biggest thing is trying to get people to stop thinking about Blackness as always already in terms of lack, mm. as always already something that is lost, that is somehow always behind, past, and you know, even though people think this way, we see in practice this is clearly not the case. So, for instance, one, I think, case of kind of speculation and race, blackness, that uh, is probably should, likely more well-known than others is the Hewlett Styles, Henrietta Lacks story, than the story of the Lacks family. You have this black woman whose cells were taken without her consent and has otherwise become the backbone of like the entire, like much of the scientific enterprise, including pharmaceutical development. I mean, you name it. I mean, when I often we we saw, you know, how the world changed with COVID, like how the world literally stopped. And if I'm not mistaken, right now um, I haven't looked in like months, but I, if I'm not mistaken, the Lax family is currently suing a pharmaceutical company. If I'm not mistaken, again, but specifically on trying to deal with the gross discrepancy of how much people continue to profit off of 
Henrietta's cells long after she's passed away. And I say this because, you know, what happened, what would happen if the Lax family were actually like, even monetarily, like given their due? What if they actually had a say in what people would do with it? Like, you would actually have to see the entire industry pause, like, like COVID for pharmaceuticals. Like even thinking about for me, back in the day when I was in high school, I went to this magnet boarding school, the North Carolina School of Science and Math, and it gave us a lot of even like for juniors and seniors in high school, these amazing research opportunities. And I remember being, what is it? The National Institute for Environmental Health Sciences. And it's just like learning techniques about like, like typical genetics techniques like gel electrophoresis, PCR, and we're using HeLa cells. I had no idea at that moment what a HeLa cell were, was. Nobody explained it. It's just like, yep, here, we just do this. <laughs> I'm just like casually, casually, again, as a teenager, casually doing this. Like it's so ubiquitous. And so we have this kind of situation where like people are speculating in real time, like in terms of monetarily, capital, like people are consistently speculating off of black folks, like happening all the time. And so what does it mean, you know, to take consideration of like blackness, Afrofuturism in so far as it's not always black people's lives and it's like their material lives being speculated for other folks. What does it mean for us to speculate this world, another world for ourselves to create a different kind of quite literal vision, different kind of language, a different kind of grammar for what that world can be. And it's not necessarily like an escape per se. I mean, it's, it's literally like reckoning with the, like, how does it, what does it mean to, again, build something else and like destroying like the world that is like ethically like what is it like speculation as again this like imagination being so powerful speculation is an ethic what is like the moral kind of drive behind the, what we are speculating and for whom and what does it mean in terms of afrofuturism to be doing the speculation on our terms for ourselves and it's fascinating when you think of health disparities, right, in black and minority communities, you know, how does all of that impact, you know, what we, we're seeing now in a post-COVID world right now? How does black feminism and, you know, even Afrofuturism answer questions about health disparities in black and minority communities? Well, I think one, it would be just asking a simple question of like post, post-COVID, post-pandemic for whom? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like it'd be asked, getting us to ask questions or taking seriously, for instance, if I'm not mistaken, there's a study that's soon to be published about the fact that, I mean, I think many of us saw this in real time, but how in the United States, mitigation efforts around COVID in the early, early moments all but ceased <laughs> once we saw that it wasn't white people who were being affected, but the majority, the kind of change that the people who were suddenly being hit were black and brown folks and oftentimes working class, which, I mean, some of this is just the issue of transfer of like, you suddenly went from this mobile, middle, upper class group who were getting it via travel, you name it, but these are also likely people who are in contact with folks who are serving them and like service in a whole host of ways. And those people are service based on lack of resources, oftentimes, or even dependence on having to depend on or can't isolate themselves from community are forced to be in close proximity to one another in a way that other folks are not. It was literally a kind of powder keg for a kind of creation of a racialized health disparity that, you know, it's the issue is trying to then not say that this is a black disease. Like this is not just our problem. Like you, like people made this this way. People opted out. And so if there's anything thinking about the future, it's dealing with the fact that like this problem, I like people other people are gonna be affected too. You can't you can't say that like this is this this time this this whole pandemic is it's ongoing. You opting out does not mean doesn't stop, doesn't stop anything. And so how maybe in terms of just being creative, yes, acknowledging that, but Again, how do we focus the resources for ourselves in dealing with these disparities in many respects when certain kind of bureaucratic 
resources have not made themselves available. And it's, you know, it's not just representation. Representation is not enough. People need material resources. And if there's anything about black feminism, it's making sure the link theory to practice. You cannot talk about liberation and health without talking about how do you materially help people. Oftentimes health disparities are not about a gene. They're about this person that is poor, <laughs> like and they have been made poor based on job discrimination, about lack of, about the ways that in terms of genealogies and family legacy, various generations being denied access to resources. That's the way a kind of chronic condition shows up over and over again. How that shapes food choices, nutrition, I mean, you name it. Yeah, if there's anything, Black feminists would be like taking this kind of health disparity, making sure we're not, even though it's affecting Black folks, not making it as like, this is Black people's fault. Folks have been failed, and how do we try to figure out a way to redress and redirect that failure to heal? It's I See You. I'm Eddie Robinson, and we're so grateful to be speaking with Dr. Victoria Massey. She's a professor of anthropology at Rice University with a brand new course being offered up this fall called Black Feminist Science Studies. And why do you think we don't see more courses being offered up anywhere that are focused on the African diaspora and and black feminism? Perhaps there is, and, you know, maybe you can tell us, but is this course perhaps one of the first? I mean, what's going on? I definitely would not say it's the first by any means. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just, it's, so much of it is, you know, various conditions. And I think that's like thinking about like, what is higher education? So when we see, for instance, questions about how to talk about or teach race and racialization. So like, for instance, I don't say that I do critical race theory. Like that is actually like a very specific thing around legal theory and discussions of race, which is why Kimberly Crenshaw, who is also a legal scholar, in addition to being a sociologist, like I said, intersectionality counts as like critical race theory. I study race and racialization. They're not the same things. And so when you have this kind of climate that is distorting the study of race as critical race theory, to kind of not address racism structurally. You know, if you're at a public university versus a private, <laughs> that can change what kind of courses you're you're teaching. I have the benefit, you know, I guess knock on wood, whatever that means, of like, being at a private institution. So there's a little bit more kind of freedom I have about what kind of classes I'm teaching and stuff. I happen to be in an environment where there's a lot of people doing this work, I'm, but that's not always happening. I'm really lucky more than anything. And I'm sure that that's what you want students to come away with from the course, right? To, you know, get them to talk seriously about issues like racism and you know, anti-blackness and how it shapes our world and, mm-hmm. and, 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 and thinking about, you know, STEM from a black focus. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that I often find is that students are really, like, we have, so I think about where I was in college and where I see students now, and I think they're, like, they have certain kind of language, like, down packs. Like, I was not talking about anti-Blackness when I started college, and it was, like, what, it was, like, 2007. To me, that is not that long ago. Other people, that is, like, you are ancient. I don't know what that means. I'm, like, <laughs> I feel like I'm it's afraid to ask your age, by the way. <laughs> As my as my grandmother said, you know, it's, it's impolite to ask a woman her age. So I'm going to take that into that <laughs> as a response okay. to that. Okay. <laughs> but, right. you know, I just I have students I who are just <laughs> you did try. <laughs> <laughs> but I have students who come in and they're like, you know, I'm you know, want to ask this question about white supremacy or what is anti-blackness or like all these like various like, you know, cis heteropatriarchy. And I'm not I say this not to like trivialize it. Like I just want to like or even think about like being anti-capitalist. I just that was not my frame of reference. And again, it was not that long ago. And I think some of us is just dealing with like, this is a generation like Gen Z dealing with coming up, coming of age with social media. And there's just like all these kinds of vocabulary that they just have access to. What they don't necessarily have access to is the theory, Mm. the concepts and grounding them. And so I think more than anything, like, yes, I hope you have a more robust understanding of, racism, sexism, classism, empire, like really thinking about anti-blackness in like a very broad global sense. But more than anything, 
I want you to be able to like, whatever your relationship is to this concept, you have read what X, X and Y literature, so you can have an like informed discussion about this. And it's not just you feeling like you're right, like you actually know, like you've done the work. And I think sometimes people are so caught up in the rhetoric and seeing like and kind of worried about not being wrong that they see the like move to try to get them to get into the actual text as like attacks. Like, no, I'm not saying you're wrong, but like what you don't necessarily know what you're talking about and mm. you don't, you have to make space to like give yourself, you have to give yourself space to learn. Dr. Massey, what's your biggest fear as it relates to the work you're doing? Settling. Yeah, I just, <laughs> my biggest fear is holding back how I ask precise questions. And I feel that, like, I, I have a, my first article that I published, and I know there are things I didn't push. I, like, punked out, I'm, like, yeah. like attention to certain things. It's really settling, like, not taking the risk. That, that's actually what scares me the most oftentimes. What's the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself thus far in your career? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, <laughs> Jesus, no, I'm just, uh, so, no, I'm like, <laughs> I guess uh, it's almost like there are a couple of things. So I think one Go is. Don't um, edit. I know. I'm like, I'm not intimidating, but a lot of people are intimidated by me and it's not my responsibility to manage their fears that have nothing to do with me. That's one. Two, I had a conversation with a colleague yesterday, so I was laughing. But I, I think one of the things I've realized is that one of the weird things about, so it's like, for instance, you're now going, like being in higher education, going from like an undergrad to a grad student, to now like an actual professor, feels like no time. What I'm learning is that, you know, it seems like the more authority you have, you have to be, there's a certain kind of, need to do a lot more work of discernment and trust and not necessarily controlling what other people do. I think oftentimes I think about authority is like I am in control of an entire situation. And I say this not to say because I've been great about this. Oftentimes the lessons come from complete and utter failures. It's it's about learning that with having more authority, sometimes you also have to respect that this means meeting people where they are and listening to where they are and recognizing you can't always save them. You can do your best, but you, it, more authority does not mean that you should be controlling everyone and everything around you per se. Yeah, those are like the two big things, <laughs> I think. She's Dr. Victoria Massey, professor in the Department of Anthropology at Rice University. She's developed a new course at Rice, which will be available in the fall of this year. And we're so grateful that you've spent some time with us here at ICU with Eddie Robinson. Thank you so much, Dr. Massey. Thank you. This was such a pleasure. Our team includes technical director Todd Holslander, producer Laura Burks, editors Mark DiClaudio and John Mitchell Good. Sound designer, Dave McDermott. ICU is a production of Houston Public Media. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And for more updates and episodes, visit our website, isseushow.org. I'm your host and executive producer, Eddie Robinson. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, I feel you. We hear you. I see you. Until next time. This programming is sponsored by Trinity University, where the spirit of inquiry can inspire a resilient and diverse community of lifelong learners to answer questions and question answers. More information at trinity.edu values.